everyone, and welcome to Sparks, 538 science podcast. This is where we talk about science writing that we've read or science in the news and the big ideas behind it. This month, we're going to be talking about politics as it relates to health. And um, the mental and physical health of Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton have both been in the news recently and for several months. And we'd like to talk about what that means exactly. I'm Blythe Terrell. I'm the science editor here at 538. And I'm here with our science team. With me is lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hi, Christy. Hi, Blythe. We have public health, food, and culture writer Anna Maria Barry Jester. Hi, Anna. Hello. And we have senior science writer Maggie Kurth Baker. Hi, Maggie. Hi there. We have an interesting campaign on our hands here. And we have Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And they're, they're some of the older presidential candidates we've had in a while. Uh, they are also controversial, and they have a, inspire a lot of different feelings from a lot of different parts of the population. And one of the things that's come up over and over again is the mental health and the physical health of the candidates. So there's some historical context for the media and for health professionals talking about presidential candidates. A lot of that comes out of the 1964 presidential election between Lyndon Johnson and Barry Goldwater. And there was an incident there that led to what's called the Goldwater Rule, came out in 1973 by the American Psychiatric Association. So we're going to talk a little bit about the backstory in a minute, but first I want Christy to read us the Goldwater Rule itself. Sure. And so I'm going to read this verbatim, and I just want to warn everyone that it's a bit stiff. So here we go. On occasion, psychiatrists are asked for an opinion about an individual who is in the light of the public attention or who has disclosed information about himself or herself through public media. In such circumstances, a psychiatrist may share with the public his or her expertise about psychiatric issues in general. However, it is unethical for a psychiatrist to offer a professional opinion unless he or she has conducted an examination and has been granted proper authorization for such a statement. So that, that's the text of the, the Goldwater Rule. And there are really sort of three main pieces of rationale here for, for this rule. The first is that most diagnoses made from a distance turn out to be wrong. Um, the labels themselves can cause real harm to family members and the, the people themselves um, with stigma, et cetera. And then the practice really sort of undermines the credibility, especially with regards to confidentiality of the psychiatric field. Right. So these are so those are the things, Christy, that come up when you have a psychiatrist who's not treating a, someone, any kind of public figure or, you know, somebody else in the news. But a reporter comes to that person and says, hey, what do you think about this person's like psychiatric diagnosis? Or maybe they not, might not even ask for a diagnosis, but, you know, they might be presenting that psychiatrist with the, with the opportunity to essentially say this is what I think is going on with that person behind the scenes, you know, their mental health. Yeah, you you see this come up a lot actually in like gossip magazines. There's one psychiatrist in particular who is, you know, frequently quoted in like People and Us and it always comes with the sort of disclaimer, so-and-so has never treated Britney Spears. <laughs> um, one of the things actually that came up when we were ha discussing having this conversation to begin with is what our obligation is, you know, in terms of in terms of having conversations about this without necessarily being speculative ourselves, right? 
Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's it's interesting. I mean, there are, I, I looked into ethical guidelines for journalists, and the Associated Press has a style book entry. Um, you know, we at Five Thirty Eight use the Associated Press style book as sort of the basis for our style guide. And you know, it says things like if you're mentioning a mental health issue, it needs to be appropriately sourced. Um, and hmm. so, like, how do you appropriately source something if psychiatrists aren't supposed right. to make diagnoses for people they haven't examined? And you certainly don't want journalists to be doing it. I mean, that makes even less sense in a way. I mean, that's, you know, so it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Right. You really don't want to get into the situation where you're saying, well, we're not saying he's crazy, but if <laughs> right. you look about, you know, like that, that feels unethical to me, right? When I think that, that, I agree, Christy. I think right. that. Well, and giving a megaphone to, you know, to unsubstantiated claims. I mean, the other thing that this is a little bit of a sidestep, but there's this really big overwhelming problem where we often, we, the media, have done a terrible job historically. We've done this thing where we connect mental illness and violence, and it's it's really very problematic. And you see that coming up even in this election. And so, you know, I, I think that always really makes things very difficult. I mean, you know, if you're talking about a bellicose president and you're conflating it with mental illness and talking about violence, it creates a huge amount of stigma for people with mental illness. I think that's a really good point, Anna. One of the things I really worry about, too, is that, you know, by using mental health issues as labels, as sort of like ways of demonizing people and saying, if you have this particular condition, it means you are this certain way and you can't help it. And it's sort of inevitable. You know, you're really sort of promoting this idea that someone with a mental health issue is just, you know, out of control and and a certain way and can't be helped. Right. Which is right. Obviously, we can get back to some of that. Um, But one thing I want to do is talk about what you're just mentioning here, Christy, in kind of the context of 1964. So if we go back to um, before the Goldwater Rule existed and why the Goldwater Rule existed, it came about because of a very specific article in an issue of something called Fact Magazine. Anna, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the story that appeared in Fact Magazine back in September, October 1964? Yeah, so Fact Magazine was this magazine that purported to tell truths that mainstream media wasn't reporting. Um, so in the 1964 election between LBJ and Barry Goldwater, they put out an entire edition <laughs> that was basically <laughs> dedicated to the idea that Barry Goldwater had mental health issues. And they hinged that on a survey that they did. By um, They sent a survey out to all of the members of the American American Psychiatric Association, asking them if they believed Goldwater was psychologically fit to be president. Um, like we're not saying he is or isn't, but like, yeah. what do you think? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and before we even get into like the ethical dilemmas and problems with that, but so the way that Fact Magazine um, presented the results of this survey was such a like gross manipulation of fairly bogus statistics that they had. So they, <laughs> they pulled over 12,000 psychiatrists less than 20 percent of them answered and of so those responded at all like yeah it responded at just all. didn't send back this questionnaire exactly that, okay of those who did respond just over 50 percent either said he was fit to be president or they didn't know enough to answer but the headline that fact ran on the cover of this edition of this magazine <laughs> I love was this headline was fact 1189 psychiatrists say goldwater is psychologically unfit to be president exclamation point oh Okay, so that is a, a very, very um, biased, perhaps, use of data. I think I it's like fair to think say. We, I like to think we wouldn't do that. At <laughs> 538, I hope not. Right. I, I think that this is also evidence that, you know, we think that the media has gotten so out of control these days and it's so partisan. And it's like, I think this is evidence that this is not a new problem. 
Right. Absolutely. I mean, and you know, honestly, when I read this, I thought about some of the other coverage, political coverage that I was that I've read about from that time, you know, like Hunter S. Thompson and the tone of those things. I mean, this story very much fit with the tone of what was the sort of gonzo journalism happening back then, which does not excuse its ethical lapses. Um, but I thought was also very interesting because I was thinking about it in terms of the context of the time. It might not have felt so sort of brutal and eviscerating of Goldwater because the article that accompanies the the, psychi- the psychiatrist's responses is, I think, pretty tough to read in, through a modern lens. Oh, my God. It's so tough to read. Yeah. I just want to read just a sentence out of it that says... Mr. Goldwater's illness is not just an emotional maladjustment or a mild neuroses or a queerness. You know, even just like the terms that they're using are things right. that just really feel over the top today, right? Right. A lot of so right. There, like yeah. this is an existing in a, in a different place and time, and which does not excuse it. But I want to put that in a little bit of context. So, like one of the things that really stood out to me reading that article was the way that, and I think we're going to talk about this also as we go along. Like the way that it shows kind of the evolution of mental illness. And how we think about difference, um, because like, and also like the evolution of political identity, also because I mean, coming into this as a liberal, you'd likely agree with Fact Magazine that Goldwater shouldn't be president, but you would probably, as a modern liberal, disagree a lot with them about why. Um, and the stuff that Christie mentioned about like the language they use, and in particular, the like heavy dose of homophobia that is just pervasive throughout this entire story. I mean, what it has meant to be a liberal has changed. And partly that's because science finally started accepting queerness as difference rather than deviance. Can you explain a little bit? I mean, like at the time that this story was written, you know, the American Psychiatric Association classified being gay as a mental illness. And um, that is really obvious in the way that this story is written. Um, Like, there's no question that that would be a horrible thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they spend a ton of this time, ton of time in the story insinuating that Goldwater's dad is gay, and that Goldwater has all these problems with not adhering to gender norms, or has like all these insecurities about his own gender norms. And like, this is stuff that you know, science finally started to realize was not actually a deviance. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it it was an important reminder to me that like that science was late to the table on this as well as the political structure late to the table on this. You mean you know, recognizing that this wasn't deviance. right? Yeah, yeah, like that queer people made their own place at this table. Liberal politics didn't hand it to them. Right, Maggie, and I think like also we have had such a poor understanding of mental health issues historically. And so our, you know, our understanding is changing dramatically. It's only like recently that they have more kind of um, like diagnostic tests and things like that. But it just feels like, I mean, whenever you read anything about mental health, it's so dated within, you know, just a few years, even it's kind of unbelievable. Definitely, Anna. And one thing that I've noticed is that there's this tendency to almost want to, it's, it's almost like an impulse, like, like people want to know what kind of person this, this person is that's under discussion or, you know, whether they're a good person or a bad person, or whether it's sort of like something fundamental about them versus like, you know, behaviors and things that they're choosing to do. And I think that a lot of this goes um, back to this idea that, you know, this someone that may have a mental illness or that we're labeling with that mental illness label is somehow inherently good or bad or flawed in a way that's sort of, um, you know, not fixable. Yeah, Christy. And it, it, 
along those lines, it occurred to me, like, you know, we did, I did the story for uh, 538 about the Goldwater rule a few months ago. And it occurred to me while preparing for this podcast that we had totally framed that wrong. Like we were kind of asking, why can't psychiatrists tell us what they think about a candidate? In that story, when the real question is, why do you want to know about somebody's mental health so badly? I think that is a really good point, Maggie. And I want to pause quickly. We can continue the conversation in a minute. Um, we'd like to get a word from a sponsor. And here is Jody Abergan with a word from this week's sponsor. What's the Point is brought to you by Me Undies. You wear underwear every day, at least most of us do. Well, it's time to try something better. Me Undies has created the world's most comfortable underwear with a blend of fabric that is three times softer than cotton. Life feels better in Me Undies. When you feel awesome from the inside out, you look awesome from the outside in. Think about it. MeUndies is made from Modal, a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. They have tons of colors and patterns from classic to bold to adventurous, and MeUndies is the only brand that has matching pairs for men and women. The world may not know you're matching, but you will. All orders from MeUndies in the U.S. and Canada ship for free, and if you don't love your first pair, though you probably will, MeUndies will pay you back and you can keep it for free. No questions asked. Trust me, no one is going to ask you too many questions about that. For a limited time, MeUndies is offering you 20% off your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash WTP for What's the Point. If you don't love your first pair, it's free. You have no excuse. Try it right now. Make sure to go to MeUndies.com slash WTP. Get 20% off MeUndies.com slash WTP so that they know this podcast sent you. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so let's return to Maggie's question. Does a candidate's mental health matter? Uh, so for myself, I kind of came into this research sort of thinking that, yeah, I mean, mental health obviously matters. Like you don't want somebody with their thumb on the nuclear bomb, you know, that kind of That's thing. That's the image like we always hear. use, right? We're always right. right. It's, <laughs> it's the image we totally use as though like there's a great big red button in the Oval Office that he can just like walk up and smack in the middle of the night when he's like searching <laughs> for a snack, you know? And that's the only thing that matters. You know? Right. <laughs> and like... that's the only thing that matters. Um, but honestly, like I have to say at this point, I'm kind of of the mind that like, your mental health status does not matter to me at all as a candidate. Um, it's not relevant. I don't but, think it's relevant. But Maggie, I think also <laughs> the question of whether or not like their mental, like mental health status and me medical records is kind of separate from whether or not people who haven't uh, examined a candidate should be able to make claims about their mental health. Sure. Absolutely. But I think that like we try to put those experts in that position and want them to make those claims because we as the public, and I'm speaking as the public here, not as a reporter, um, like we as the public want to know that information. And I am kind of of the mind now that, you know, maybe that information isn't something that we should know. So you think it's not relevant? Or but you but think Maggie, it's not relevant? Okay. But Maggie, here's a question. Yeah. Um, what about, you know, a, a candidate who is under, you know, the, the, the candidate's personal doctor or personal psychiatrist, what about that person making a diagnosis? So if you are a, a candidate's uh, psychiatrist and you have made a diagnosis that this person is um, perhaps, let's say, paranoid, I'm making these things up, I'm not talking about a particular candidate, but let's say that, that you've made a diagnosis that they're paranoid or that they are um, you know, somehow having um, 
some sort of symptoms that could be problematic. Like, what is the obligation there? I, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know what the obligation is there, but I don't know necessarily that them having a mental health problem should disqualify them from the presidency. And the reason that I came to this conclusion is actually like going back and reading some historical stuff about presidents. So if you think about like Calvin Coolidge and Abe Lincoln, um, both of them lost a son while in office, and they both ended up with, you know, what might be diagnosed today as really severe depressive states. Um, and they ended up in completely different outcomes from that. In terms of their presidential performance? Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, Coolidge, Coolidge's second term, like, it, he's most famous for just, like, not talking now. Um, it's considered right. this giant do-nothing, and he's usually, like, listed as one of the worst presidents in history. And then you have Lincoln, who's, like, you know, Lincoln. Um, if you're disqualifying people on the basis of a diagnosis, if you are feeling like, oh, my God the president has severe depression, his psychiatrist has an obligation to tell us about that and we should make him step down. You know, what does that leave you with? President Hannibal Hamlin? Like, (laughs) you know, who... And this is where I kind of decided, like, who gives a shit? Well, there is a question also, Maggie, of, of, you know, if you do decide that there are, you know, this this came up in a story that Claire and I wrote uh, recently about physical health for the presidential candidates. That's Claire Malone, one of our politics reporters. Right, yeah. right. Okay. And so the, the question is, so one of the, I spoke with a physician who said that, you know, there may be a case and there probably is a case for, you know, saying that, you know, it's legitimate to know some information about the candidate's health, but he felt pretty squeamish. And I do too, about the idea of making, you know, are there particular conditions that should disqualify someone? And, you know, the concern here is that it starts to become a litmus test. And yeah, there's several other things that can happen there. You can end up sort of making people hide things um, and sort of increasing stigma if you do that. Um, But you also sort of are stigmatizing further, whatever that condition is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, I think that Ultimately, what actually matters is, you know, the issues and their actions and their beliefs. And I think that that's, you know, even true if you're looking at like this Goldwater story, you know, they started off in Fact Magazine with this big long list of, you know, reasons why he wasn't fit. And it was like poor international policy grasp, paranoiac, secretive and totalitarian backers. Why do you need the paranoiac <laughs> in the middle? Like, that's but, enough of a shit sandwich with just the bread. <laughs> but, right. but Maggie, I mean, again, I, I'm just to reiterate this, like, it's a very different thing asking, like, should we get to know about all of the medical issues a candidate has? And should we be able to have people who have not examined them make claims about them? And should that be like part of our, you know, should we be walking around making claims about mental health of candidates as like the public or even as like trained physicians who haven't examined that person? I think that it's important that those things are separated. Like there's a question like, Mm -hmm. okay, you know, these candidates have been more uh, to date, haven't have been less forthcoming about their medical records than in history. Okay. Maybe we need to talk about whether there needs to be a rule about whether or not they, you know, release their medical records. That's like a real conversation, really interesting topic. But that's really separate from whether or not medical professionals who haven't examined the candidate should be allowed to make claims about the candidate. That's a fair point, Anna. Anna, that's a great great point. And I I think that, you know, I don't think that there's a very strong 
case to be made that we should be diagnosing people, you know, that, that any medical professional should be diagnosing someone who they have not examined. Like that just seems like a no brainer to me. So physical or mental? Physical or mental. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, and, I, and also like, you know, so there have been, we're talking about 1964 and Goldwater, but there have been a lot of things written yeah. about both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And in several of the things about Donald Trump, where they're making claims about him, they've used things like he talks over people during debates as evidence <laughs> that he has a mental health issue. And it's like, well, okay. Or I'm he's crazy. not a trained debater. <laughs> or he's or, just an asshole. Yeah. All <laughs> the above, which uh, to that point, Christy, being an asshole might be plenty of reason to decide that you don't want somebody to be the president. And I understand why we, we, why we society like to try and, you know, ascribe diagnosable mental health issues to people because it makes it harder to argue with. Like if right. I say you this candidate, somebody else, exactly. If I say this candidate only cares about herself, um, then you can say like, well, but I like her policies. But if I say this person has a narcissistic personality disorder and that's going to get in the way of their decision making, if you, I think it's easier, you know, it's harder to argue with that. So I get why we do it, but it's just totally ridiculous. When you look at the evidence that's used to back up these claims, they're always ridiculous. Well, and one of the things, um, you know, that happened with the Goldwater case is Goldwater lost the election. Um, he came back and he sued Fact Magazine and Ralph Ginsburg, the founder of the magazine, and it ended up winning a libel case against them, um, essentially because his lawyers were able to prove that there was malice behind what um, the magazine was doing. You know, you have to be able to prove that someone lied intentionally, and also you have to be able to prove malicious intent. So Goldwater got a little bit of money out of the deal, um, and then, you know, subsequently also there was the Goldwater rule, which, you know, in, th in theory has had an impact since then. But also, it's honestly, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes, right? Because we're still reading these articles. So, you know, has it, even though it exists as a rule and a guideline for, for psychiatrists, do you all feel like the intent of it is being honored currently? No. Not remotely. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. I was like, there's some argument was, there, but no. When I was <laughs> reporting on this, I, I, I was trying, like, I called around to a whole bunch of APA people and was like, has anyone ever actually been, like, called to question or like, you know, put through some kind of censure for doing this. And nobody ever has. Um, like no one at the so APA, no, consequences. no psychiatrist yeah. could ever could come up with like any example of the APA ever enforcing this rule. And I mean, it's the just there. <laughs> yeah. And on the other hand, there's probably a lot of them, a lot of psychiatrists or psychologists who have, you know, made some money off of, you know, the opposite of sort of breaking the rule. Oh, for sure. Um, and like, I think it's also interesting that like, there's a lot of ways to kind of like, wink suggestively at the rule while not actually taking it out on a date. Um, I mean, <laughs> the like the uh, in the Atlantic, there was a story by a um, by psychologist that was framed mm -hmm. as well, this isn't a mental health diagnosis. This is a personality assessment based on, you know, things he said in public. But, like, strikingly, that was kind of how fact framed their story, too. So, like, I'm not sure that that is actually a legitimate way to be like, well, I'm not being unethical. Right. And you could tell from the in the fact article, too, they had all these, you know, blurbs, some of which uh, from the psychiatrist who responded, some of which were taken out of context and um, also, like, it's otherwise really edited. Yeah, it's really kind of slapping this clinical sounding language on something that isn't scientific at all. So it's really right. it's sort of giving this veneer of scientific credibility to something that's really just conjecture. 
Right, which yeah. is really which is really frustrating because as a member of the public, how are you supposed to know? Well, there and there has been some legitimate pushback on this rule, right? Because there are historians who are psychiatrists who do important work assessing historical figures and that kind of thing. And people have asked the question like, okay, so if we are allowed to do that with historical figures, why can't you do that with these public figures where we have so much evidence about right. their lives? But I Because you can't libel the dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but libel laws are different for public figures too, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you really but yeah, I mean in terms of I mean, I don't know if that's the defense they would use that you can't let that that's facetious you know somewhat but well, uh, yeah but it's interesting anna i think that's a really good point but, but like the distinction that the the uh, apa has made is that like um it rigorous rigorous academic analysis is different than like a journalistic output and you know I, look i'm not trying to draw the lines between where those two things exist but well, that's interesting like, though that somebody has tried yeah but i mean there are, you know there's some legitimate pushback about this but you know it's interesting like I, I called a couple doctors to see if there were similar ethical rules for physicians and they're not written in stone but like every doctor you talk to would say like i'm not going to diagnose somebody unless i've examined them but we treat mental health so differently and that's part yeah. of the problem because we we have we do there's like this wide perception that these are just kind of labels that have been slapped onto somebody but that they're not real clinical issues and that sort of perpetuates that and that is very that's what's partly so frustrating about our ability to just throw around mental health diagnoses so you mean that it basically undermines people who who would seek mental health care if is that what you're kind of saying well, I think it undermines the diagnosis themselves. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, the, a lot of people just sort of like, you know, like, oh, whatever. OK, they were diagnosed with depression, but like they just need to get their shit together. Like that is a thing that a lot of people in the in this country feel. Right. And right. Like there's already of, a lot of pushback against mental health diagnoses. That's completely unfair and not it, based on science. Exactly. And so when you're just throwing these things around, I think it really, really delegitimizes the fact that, you know, these are real health issues just like any other. Well, and like mm -hmm. on the flip side, I think there's also this sort of assumption that like not only what you said, Anna, but also at the same time that if you have a diagnosis that is some sort of absolutist determination of yourself, you know, that like somebody that you could diagnose with a narcissistic personality disorder is obviously going to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so like it, it like it's in this weird space where I feel like these kind of stories both undermine legitimate mental health diagnoses and also overestimate like the accuracy and outcome prediction of a mental I, health diagnosis. That's such a great point, Maggie, because like we don't say people are leukemia. Right. Right. You know that. those leukemia people. Yeah. But we, we do put we do, you know, ascribe mental health illness, you know, whatever. It's just un, it's yeah. It's kind of an interesting thought exercise to, to wonder, like, what if one of the candidates were to come out and say, yes, I've been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, and, you know, it's what makes me strong. And I think that there's a case <laughs> to be made, right? Like, <laughs> um, I, I, I wish someone would do that. <laughs> but didn't one of you say there's some evidence that people who kind mm -hmm. of, like, come out publicly get treated a little bit differently than... Well, like, Lawton Childs won the governorship of Florida while being open about a history of depression and antidepressant use. Um, and you also have, you know... I mean, you also have cases of, like, Kitty Dukakis. So Michael Dukakis, one of the reasons they think he might have lost the 1988 presidential election is that he ended up in the midst of this media kerfluffle with people implying that he had had some kind of mental illness um, that he hadn't had. 
Um, but at the same time, he his wife had spent 26 years with a um, amphetamine addiction, and in the early 80s had had depression after she got off of those med- those meds. Um, but she disclosed that up front at the beginning of the campaign; and it became a complete non-issue. Um, so, like, there is some evidence that disclosure is, you know. It doesn't disqualify you. It doesn't disqualify you. And it also decreases stigma. Um, You know, there's been some papers written about what Kitty Dukakis has done to decrease stigma. And I I think the stigma thing, like, it's important to talk about the fact that when we say stigma, we're not just saying that, like, oh, people with mental illnesses might not like themselves enough. You know, what we mean is that, like, stigma can disqualify people from a job. Like, if you can disqualify somebody from the job of president your boss might think it can disqualify you from the job you do. Um, you know, it can make you lose housing. You know, these are they're very real world consequences to very real people of us perpetuating stereotypes and negative stigmas in the media. Including access to treatment, which I think is a really important one. And again, this goes back to, you know, the idea of if you make it a disqualifying condition, do you mean then that people won't seek treatment? And in a lot of cases, most cases, probably, you know, there are treatments that can be helpful. And so by adding to the stigma, you're really just sort of harming the patients themselves. Right. That's, those are such great points, both of you. And yeah, like the, the idea, there's a perpetual problem, the idea that people who have a mental health issue are untreatable and it, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's forever. And that, Mm -hmm. that is also really problematic. And you're right. It just perpetuates those ideas. I believe one of the articles that, that Maggie sent around before this, that we read, um, mentioned the fact that it would be great if there was a psychiatrist on the white house medical staff. Um, Mm, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Because the, the white house medical staff treats, of a, a number of people within the White House staff, not just any one person. So if you had, if everybody there had access to resources for mental health, you know, if the pre- if a president needed resources, the president could get resources. If other members of the White House staff, I mean, that's got, all those jobs have to be incredibly stressful, right? Um, you know, so I mean, I think, and also, and in general, like people with, who, you know, who, who have mental, mental health illnesses, mental illnesses, will still need treatment no matter what they're doing, right? If they're working on the White House staff or if they're working somewhere else. So I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, what what's available and what might be available to people, um, you know, who, who needed treatment, who are in that position. That's a great point, Blythe. And I'll just bring up, I know that there are, there actually are at least, I know of at least one profession in which a mental health condition would be um, a deal killer, so to speak, and that is being a pilot. I happen to know hmm. someone, a pilot who died by suicide, um, who mm-hmm. probably was not getting treatment treatment because he didn't want to stop flying. And, you know, these are, these are real issues. I'm not saying that, you know, these aren't something that, to think about, but it's, you know, they have consequences. Well, and also Goldwater was a pilot, which is mentioned in the article, although right. there's a lot about that, but um, yeah, but I mean, that was also part of his defense, I believe. And the defense, when other people came to his defense, they said he was a pilot for the military. Uh, there's no way he could have done that if he had mental illness issues. Um but yeah, so I think that's a really interesting point, Christy. Do we think? Well, I think I think yeah. one of the things that we we should probably close with is this idea that like how we know really very little about mental health, and that it our understanding of it changes a lot in a really short period of time, and there's likely to be things that you know fifty years from now 
somebody reads some of these Trump stories that are going to look as horrible as the blatant homophobia in the Fact Magazine story. I mean, like, it, it, it's probably almost for certain. Like history is going to reflect back poorly on this time. I, I that history's, sort of what you're saying? History is going to reflect back poorly on the way we understand mental illness right now. Right. Because, hit, because our understanding of mental illness is tiny. Right. Yeah, I had, I had one last thought, and that is, um, you know, I wrote something earlier this year about why facts, you know, there's very little that's likely to change Trump supporters' minds or Clinton supporters by that measure, too. And, you know, I think people see what they want to see. And so much of this armchair diagnosing is really trying to give some sort of scientific veneer to just saying, I don't like him or I don't like her, whichever the case may be. And so I think we need to really be careful there and recognize that a lot of this is just motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the point I wanted to make, Christy, too, is that the it'd be one thing if, you know, it's people trying to have an educated conversation about a particular issue, but that's not what's going on here. It really is just arm, armchair diagnosis that is not based in fact, and that is really problematic. Right. Agreed. Okay, well, great. Well, thanks, everybody, so much. This has been an interesting conversation about the Goldwater Rule. Uh, that's it for episode two of Sparks. I want to say thanks to Christy Ashwanden. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Anna Maria Barry Jester. Thanks, ladies. <laughs> thanks, Maggie Kurth Baker. Appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. All right. In the second part of this episode about the Goldwater Rule, we'll have Maggie talking with Dr. Patrick Corrigan, who's a professor of psychology at the Illinois Institute of Technology. And he is also an advocate for people with mental illness and has studied stigma and how to reduce it. So that should be a great conversation. And we'd also like to give you a heads up that next month we're going to be talking about The Art of Risk by Kate Sukel, so you might want to check that out. You can read along with us and join in listening next month. I want to say thanks to our producers Chadwick Matlin, Lucina Malesio, and Jody Avergan. Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada are in the control room, and thanks to Ariel Zions for help with this episode. As you know, we'll be doing this podcast every month here in the What's the Point feed, so please subscribe now and so you don't miss an episode and help us spread the word. And please let us know what you think. You can email podcasts at 538.com with comments or suggestions. We are always looking for new ideas, so send them our way. I'm Blythe Terrell, and thanks again for listening. <laughs>